If you're looking for a hunting and fishing podcast that celebrates wild food ingredients and how to acquire them, check out the Food Afield podcast. We take you into the field with us while we adventure for food in the backcountry. The focus is on traditional bow hunting and fly fishing, but we explore all of the ways to fill your freezer. You can listen to the Food Afield podcast on Spotify and Apple or wherever you find your podcasts. listening to the Hunter Conservationist Podcast. Well, it's taken us, uh, I don't know, like about a month to, to kind of coordinate <clears throat> getting uh, a date that worked. It's You had six, ki- six kids on one night and then it was Valentine's on another night and then my wife informed me uh, earlier this week that last night when we had scheduled was our date night, so I had to cancel our date with you and move, move it to the next day. So well, priorities, man. Yep, that's understandable. Sometimes you just got to adapt and overcome. <laughs> yeah, totally. So that's the great thing about not being, <clears throat> as you know, as a podcast host, not being up on the, the night before you want an episode out. Yep. Um, giving yourself a bit of a buffer. But... Um, yeah, what I wanted to do here right at the outset, uh, because you are <clears throat> a, uh, a resident of the state of Alaska, I just want to personally thank you for shooting down the spy balloons that were in the Yukon. <laughs> like, like total. Do you want to do you want to walk us through like like you know how how you accomplished that? Um, did you practice, you know, what, what caliber <laughs> did you use? What grain, what grain bullet? <laughs> well, it was a six, five Creedmoor and cause those kill anything they touch and no practice necessary and have to, have oh, to just out of the box. Yards. Yep. Out of okay. The box. No, perfect. Perfect. <laughs> Boar sided <clears throat> is all. <laughs> and, and you found you got, you got like, like ample penetration on, on the balloon. Like you were able oh, there was to get nothing left. The of the, and... There was nothing left of the balloon. Yep, it was. Oh, okay, good, good, good. So, quick, clean, ethical, like like we would expect in the in the takedown of a spy balloon. That's fantastic. Yep. Yeah, that's um, <laughs> that's what hunting should be. So, so what's the word in Alaska about the, all this? Oh boy, I don't know. It probably depends on the circle you're in. Most of the people I know aren't too worried or paying attention and now some of the they're, they're you know, not the tinfoil hat crowd yeah there there certainly are some i live in fairbanks and fairbanks <laughs> fairbanks is basically at the end of the road and it's end of the road town for sure but uh you know kind of just people that end of the road type of people kind of collect here but um no and news seems to have come out lately that uh, we're not so sure that it was actually spy balloons that were shot down over here they may have just been regular weather balloons <laughs> right um, right well you gotta you gotta practice right so, yeah you do you do have I, to practice so <laughs> i i heard i heard once or read a story saw it where some balloon club in in minnesota or vermont or something apparently can't find their balloon and so it was speculation that that was the one that was shot down. Yeah, was, that was like some private, private weather enthusiasts that 
they did something where they raised a whole bunch of money and made this like little weather balloon to like track weather data and they, whatever the last ping they got it was somewhere up that way and they haven't had contact with total, totally bad timing i would not want to get a bill for scrambling a couple f-16s then go go oh, intercept yeah. your intercept your balloon <clears throat> No, that's um, that's pretty crazy. Canada actually, I, I don't remember this story, but it's come up, lost a weather balloon, and it ended up going across the Atlantic and over somewhere across Europe and <clears throat> did the same thing. It got everybody all in a big panic, and they they put Air Force uh, jets up, and they couldn't get it, and it was a big international incident. So, But yeah. you know, does anybody <laughs> up there think it was a UFO? Or, oh, I'm sure there are some people. I'm sure there are some people. We got people that think the Earth is like genuine flat earthers, and people that wrap their cell phones in tinfoil and stuff like that. Not common, oh, okay. but I know I okay. know of people. No, that's, they no, exist. That's, that's good. I worked with a guy one time that was that was all into that stuff, and he said, "Did you know that it wasn't until after the crash and the recovery of the material and the body at Roswell, New Mexico?" that the technology for cell phones came onto the market. <laughs> I was like, okay, <laughs> maybe we should get back to work. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so, oh, yeah. Oh, man. That's Someone like a conversation you need alien to have with... <laughs> Got his iPhone off of him. Yeah. It's like a conversation you, you're, you know, you dread your buddy bringing up in the in the rainy day in the tent some, some day out hunting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So, so what do you think? Are UFOs real? <laughs> no. Anyways. Um, yep. No. Uh, appreciate appreciate you doing that. That was um, definitely a big, uh, big safety thing for Canada. Knock knocking down those balloons. So, hey everybody, it's Mark Hall, your host, and it's Curtis All, the co-host. The Hunter Conservationist Podcast is brought to you by Community Minded Alpine Toyota in Cranbrook, BC. Get the perfect off-road truck to take your adventures to the next level with Alpine Toyota. They are proud to offer a wide selection of trucks, tires, and services that are sure to meet your needs. Plus, they're dedicated to giving back to our community by supporting us here at the Hunter Conservationist, Ducks Unlimited, and therefore conservation. So, with Alpine Toyota, you can drive away with both a great vehicle and the peace of mind of knowing you're making a difference. As always, we're greatly appreciative to the folks down at Alpine. Totally. Thanks. Tyler, welcome to the Hunter Conservationist podcast. No, thanks for having me. And Tyler Friel, you are a staff writer for Outdoor Life. Yep. And yep, the host correct. of Tundra Talk podcast. Yep. That's yeah. That's correct. Uh, so that's a, a podcast. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say that it's a it's a very rough around the edges podcast. You could oh, say. Well, <laughs> well, then people probably love it because it's authentic, right? Yeah. No, we we try to be. Yeah, if we're if we're anything, we're ourselves. <laughs> well, that's that's that shows through, and people like that, right? Like it's it's. Uh, I think that's the cool thing about podcasts, independent podcasts, is uh, is a little bit of that 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 realness. Your your podcast your whole entire thesis for your show is hunting fishing and trapping in alaska from an alaskan perspective i like that no thanks yeah it's uh 
something that I, it kind of got on my mind after in, the, I mean, this was years back after I figured out what podcasts were, you know, 10 years behind everyone else. And, uh, you know, started listening to different hunting podcasts and I always, you know, there's plenty, plenty of talk and stories being told about people coming up here to Alaska to hunt, but there wasn't at the time much on, uh, you know, from, from just from the perspective of those of us who live up here and do it, do it year in and year out. And it's just, just a different, just a different spin on things. And it's been a lot of fun, um, you know, get to meet and talk to, talk to a lot of different people. There's a lot of, a lot of people that no one would ever hear from or know about or hear stories from that are just exist up here other end. Yeah. So that's, if, if anything, it's, it's fun sharing sharing those stories oh absolutely yeah i think uh i think the hunters the world over you know alaska is like africa right like it's a bucket list you know people dream of the you know the the wildlife and and the wilderness and so that's mm -hmm. that's that's pretty cool i i'll uh I'll, I'll go down a little bit of a rabbit hole i've only been to alaska once and it was a uh, when i was a kid <clears throat> our family went on a whole summer camping trip uh, up there, up the Alaska Highway into Denali Park, and it was called Mount McKinley at that time. And um, we were staying in a campground, I think it was around Talk, Alaska somewhere. And okay. I remember yep. that was kind of that, there's a famous little area there where there's a, that genetic pool of the grizzly bear that are super, super blonde with the, mm -hmm. the black stockings on their legs. And so we were in this campground, and I was about 10 years old, and I was uh, bumbling around in the evening. And in the summertime, driving up there, there were ground squirrels by the billions everywhere, like just running back and yeah. forth across the road. You're like crunch, 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 crunch as you were driving on the Alaska Highway, and they're out there eating each other and stuff. And, and so I bumped into this older couple in the campground and kind of said, hello, hello. They were from Texas, they had the Texas accent. And so trying to make conversation, you know, or whatever, I made I made some sort of reference, uh, sort of small talk about to all these gophers they were running around and and, and, I, and how many of them there were. And, and the man goes, he goes, gophers. He goes, that's nothing. He said, Yesterday we was in Mount McKinley National Park and we saw the granddaddy gopher of them all and he stood this high and he and he, like he measured about two, three feet off the ground yeah. and he goes, when they get that big, they call them mommets. <laughs> <laughs> and at 10 years old, I was like, I knew everything about wildlife. I grew up in a hunting and outdoor family and stuff and I was just like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> God, is that my mom calling over there? I gotta go back to the camper. Oh man. Oh, so so I appreciate that Alaskan perspective. So you gotta you gotta set the record straight on marmots, baby yep. gophers. <laughs> yep, yep, marmots and whistle pigs and and park, parker squirrels is probably what you were seeing. Those things are they live oh, live okay. a lot of the alpine country and some some areas they're all over the place and they'll. If you leave like your, your your backpack hunting or something, and you leave your mountain house exposed, like or any zipper open, <laughs> they'll get in there and they'll bite holes in every single one of them, or they'll chew up your sleeping pads. Like they're destructive little suckers. I hear they. I've never eaten one, but I hear they 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 eat pretty well. Huh. 
Grizzly bears like them. <laughs> yeah, expend a lot of energy digging them out of the ground. I bet yep. too. So, no one of the uh, um, one of the reasons I really like I value you coming on the show is because this this topic is about a research paper that was conducted in the state of Alaska. Um, our show, we generally, you know, our our topics are about you know, science and conservation and responsible mm -hmm. hunting in Canada. But every once in a while, like a topic kind of just sort of cries out to us that we need to step outside of our country and, and take a look at a topic and, 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 and get a hold of folks, you know, like you that are, that are close to this on the ground. Predator management is a huge hot topic, you know, in both the hunting and non-hunting um, communities. And even though this is specific to the state of Alaska, uh, we just thought it was really worth covering on this show, uh, what your thoughts are gonna be on this, this paper and your experiences on the ground, because I think Canadians will be um, really interested in it, probably as well as our, our uh, American followers and stuff that listen to the podcast to get kind of like a little bit more nuanced sense of, of this paper. And one of the reasons that it caught my attention on social media when this paper was released, I immediately saw what I would flag as some anti-hunting, anti-trapping groups yeah. were immediately uh, actually here in, in um, Western Canada and British Columbia and Alberta were actually promoting this going, you know, look, here's a 40 year long study um, that showed <clears throat> once again, we all knew, you know, predator management doesn't do anything for for ungulate populations and and I was kind of you know that caught my attention and I'm like okay I, I want to dig into this uh, who should I dig into this and you and I met about four years ago on April Loki's podcast when we were on there and into the backing we were talking about stuff and I went oh, I'm just gonna reach out to Tyler <laughs> and he'll probably uh, have some good thoughts on this so appreciate you um, probably have spent some time digging into it you know like I have in order to kind of you know talk about this from an informed way on top of all of your life experience in Alaska so the our just to let you know our last episode was very similar to this one and there was a, a research paper came out of Ontario recently that kind of said because uh, Ontario banned their spring black bear hunt and it took, um, like it was banned in the 90s and it was just mm -hmm. a couple of years ago, it was brought back as a fully instated, you know, spring hunt. There was a couple of pilots and then it was fully brought back. And then a paper just came out from some scientists that had the opportunity to look at the moratorium period of the number of complaints of conflict black bears um, with humans Mm -hmm. And then the hunt was brought back in and then they could look at the number of complaints and they basically said um, hunting has no had no effect on reducing um, human bear conflict and, and it may have actually made it worse in some some management units. And, and so the same thing, it was like, you know, anti hunters were kind of promoting it. And 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 this this episode or this paper is very much kind of follows suit to that. So that just gives you a little bit of context. Yeah. Of, our past episode. I'll just quickly fill to and to we get on to your thoughts here. So this paper was called The Efficacy of Killing Large Carnivores to Enhance Moose Harvests, New Insights from a Long-Term View. 
their main findings is they showed they found no positive correlation between the harvesting of brown and black bears and any subsequent moose harvesting after following um, brown and black bear harvesting. They found no difference in the moose harvest during periods of officially designated wolf control. Any effect of wolf harvest on moose harvest was weak and our models probably reflected that the peak in wolf harvest during 1999 to 2001 also coincided with the lowest moose harvest in 2000 and 2001. So it was basically the paper was, and this is how it's being promoted, predator management doesn't make more moose for hunters. Uh-huh. What are your thoughts? Man, it's uh, my initial thoughts when I, when I hear any, you know, and like I hadn't, I hadn't heard of that, um, Ontario paper, but stuff like this, it, man, it, like, you know, on the, the pro and anti-hunting side, it's easy for people generally don't want to do the digging and understand the context or some of the, like the deeper intricacies of all this stuff. Um, they'll just latch on to this scientist says this, or this scientist says that and, and, uh, and go for it. I, uh, I was a little, you know, I was a little skeptical in, initially. I mean, I know I know some some uh, Alaska fishing game biologists, and I'm like fairly familiar with some of the predator control specific predator control programs that have gone on. And initially, you know, I'm kind of like, well, that doesn't sound quite right. And you know, reading into it, it struck me as the guy as 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 the guy was kind of maybe cherry picking certain data or making correlations that that making broader correlations off of off of smaller observations um man i like the paper such a mess and and but <laughs> it's such like a, a rat's nest sometimes I, I i spin my wheels a little bit picking some direct direction but um one of the main points of the paper that i read and there was an article i think it was in like alaska public media that uh, talked about this story, and they talked to a current fishing game biologist um, who gave example, you know, gave examples in. Uh, let me back up a second. So his this whole study is based on unit in unit thirteen of Alaska, which I can't remember the specific square mileage, but it's huge. It is a like an enormous and diverse area. You know, there's there's um, it encompasses right, part of the. It was like seventy two thousand square miles or something. Yeah, or like something that. like that. Yeah. It's it's yeah, enormous. Yeah. Basically, you know, if I had to rough guess it, I would say it's you know, maybe a hundred miles wide by hundred and fifty miles deep. I mean, you've got parts of the Chugach Mountain Range, the Talkeetna Mountain Range, the Alaska Range, you know, between the you know between the Richardson and uh and George Parks Highways, enormous area. So, and he's looking, and this paper is based, like the main point is that they, you know, they're saying they looked at 40 years of data. It wasn't a 40 year study. Yeah. They yeah. looked at 40 and years I, of harvest. I've seen harvest. that promoted. They looked at 40 years of harvest data and say, well, of, of, you know, 
at various times through this 40 years, there's been wolf control or, you know, wolf and, and bear control, quote unquote, air quotes, control programs or, or predator control going on um, during this time frame. And they looked at, you know, the heart, the, the harvest, harvest reporting is basically the only relatively consistent population reporting, reporting metric or population estimation, or it's the only consistently reported metric over that time. Um, you know, there haven't there. It's not like they were doing consistent population surveys of of moose, caribou, or 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 predators. Right. Um, so the the point I gathered from reading the paper is that they they boiled it down to over forty years the moose harvest didn't didn't increase. Now, in this Alaska Public Media story about this paper, um, one of the current fishing game biologists pointed out that well. You know, during this period from 2005 to 2015, where there was some some major changes implemented, moose harvest doubled. And and I and I'm not sure if it was. You have to look at it in. Um, you can't look at it on the macro like the entire unit doesn't really tell you what's going on, um, whether it's pro or 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 against you know a predator control program. Um, so there, there's there's some issues with that, and 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 how you look at what like what's predator control supposed to do? I talked, I spent some time talking to a local um, area biologist that I know that they're pretty leery of like coming out on you know public forums and that you know and and discussing this stuff in a not like non official capacity, but you know. And it's also a small world too, because people that were working at fishing game, you know, they like they know these people that were recently out, and it can be a diverse crowd that that, that these biologists are, and everyone does bring their own worldview and perspective into it. And you know, whether it's Alaska Fishing Game or some of the federal agencies up here, uh, do attract people that are just anti-predator hunting, anti-predator control, or you know, um. Not everybody, obviously, but there are some people. And, and this guy's perspective was that this, you know, this guy, you know, was was basically against these measures or increased, you know, measures for bear hunting or whether it's, you know, state-run predator control or just um, very more lenient bear hunting regulations um, that, you know, basically I think he put it as, you know, the guy's kind of a bear lover that's that's picked certain data or picked to um, certain situations where the predator control might not have worked very well. Yeah. Um, Cause his perspective is that sometimes, sometimes it doesn't, sometimes it doesn't work like you think it will, but sometimes it does. Sometimes it works great. And it depends on the, the individual situation and area and the goals, the goals that they have for it and the methods too. It's not, not as simple as well. We've been doing general predator control so moose harvest should be continually increasing it it doesn't look at any of the other factors or that i could see it didn't really consider any of the other factors or couldn't correlate any other factors like well maybe you know maybe years that they really hammered on the wolves that they were doing fixed you know shooting out of fixed wing aircraft maybe those springs you know they could they were more successful with the wolves because of the snowfall you know, a lot of snow late in the spring that could have also corresponded to killing, you know, a lot of winter killing a lot of young moose 
because that's a, a volatile time of year. So it's like there's too many. I don't believe that they console. I think they generally consolidated or or like um, kind of condensed things just to to more to fit maybe their narrative or the narrative they want to push rather gotcha. than saying you know because when I look at what they're presenting, it's just. You know, and, and they they do say in some ways, well, we can't make a correlation or this. Basically, all they're saying is the harvest data didn't consistently go up. You know, it wasn't consistently going up over these forty years that predator control was implemented, which to me doesn't doesn't mean that it didn't work at all, or that it or that it never works or is a bad idea. Just yeah, no, that's 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 a good point because some of the narratives I see where folks are taking the paper and then creating their narrative around it. I saw one actually this afternoon where they immediately said the paper said that wolf control uh, um, didn't increase moose populations. And, and yeah. so I, I tweeted yeah. back to it and I went, they weren't actually looking at moose populations. Nope. They were looking at hunter harvest of moose, yep. which and they so said didn't go up. Yeah, and, and those that, can be two different things. <laughs> and they are two different things. Um, yeah, because it's not it's it's not correlating a moose population because they, they they weren't surveying it. Um, but and hunt you know hunter harvest is, is a is a complete in some way it can it can have be directly affected and affected positively or maybe not affected by predator control due to you know dependent on several other factors you know and also. You know, some of the regulations for hunting in Unit 13. I can't, I'm, I don't want to be wrong on it. I, if you, I, I can't remember if Unit 13. they did say in the paper that the regulations on what a legal moose was had changed during this time frame. I think they had I, changed. I, and also there was, there's, there's some regulations to, as far as, and I don't want to get it wrong. I didn't have time to look it up this afternoon. Um, in parts of Unit 13, I believe if you moose or caribou hunt there, like if you moose hunt there, you can't kill, you can't hunt caribou elsewhere. Or if you caribou hunt there, you can't hunt moose hunt there elsewhere. And some some units, if you have, if you get a a moose permit or moose tag, you can't hunt caribou in that area. There, there it's. It's not generally the case, but there are areas like that, you know, and in that, yep. Den, you know, Denali Highway, which is kind of like right prime unit 13 area. There's some funky red regulations sometimes. And so uh, all that's just to say that that uh, like I, I wouldn't be comfortable depending on just harvest data over a long period of time to say whether or not, you know, this pro, you know, this program worked or that program worked and. You know, heck, if we're talking about bears, maybe, maybe they just didn't get enough of them. I mean, the area, the area is just is is infested with bears. Like it's 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 a very bear rich area, and and a lot of the predator control measures are are somewhat temporary too. You know, an example of that is the uh, in the forty mile country, which is to the northeast of Unit Thirteen. Um, uh, uh, you know, primarily where the 40 mile caribou herd ranges and it ranges into Canada too, a little bit, but, uh, they, for, I think it was seven years that the state did kind of an intensive wolf management 
um, where the state shot them out of helicopters and also licensed private pilots to, to shoot them out of fixed wing aircrafts aircraft and uh and all this while all this is going you know you have there's people trap it and whatnot they did that for seven years and i was skinning for a fur buyer at the time so at times like i i dealt with a lot of wolves that guys were shooting or and i saw you know some of what the state was bringing in um and i mean they would take several hundred wolves a year out of this unit and when they started their survey said there was just or when they stopped after seven years there was just as many wolves as when they started yeah. But, but the the forty mile caribou herd had really exploded, and they stopped they stopped those programs in that area a couple of years ago because the forty mile caribou herd, you know, had basically gone a little bit beyond its carrying capacity. So they're trying, and it's it's always a balancing act of you know and you know increasing increasing some of the hunt opportunities to to knock it down. But it's not it's not like a it's not like you can hold the population at a certain level, but that was an example of, of predator control working really well. And with gotcha. bears out, out in south, you know, kind of southwest Alaska, there's a couple different programs they did around McGrath and another in another spot where they were, one of them, they were shooting grizzly bears out of helicopters. And, you know, and, and the, that was very successful too as far as that local area. But, it, you know, it's not going to last forever. It's, these things aren't like... Um, uh, what would be the word um, compounding it's not like you know a predator control program for a year or two over here is going to last forever the effects are going to last forever too. yeah yeah um I, I recently read the government of british columbia's report on its caribou recovery program for the endangered caribou herds in northeastern bc they have a a wolf call in in the caribou recovery zones and they said in some of the subunits, the wolf numbers had recovered to pre-call levels within one year. Yeah, I've uh, the biologists. Why they said they have to keep it yeah. up every year. <laughs> yep. Well, and the biologists I've talked to have said that, um, and coyotes are a similar way, but wolves like it's it's something like over to have any any lasting effect or 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 meaningful lasting effect. Um, that's still going to be temporary. You have to remove like more than 50% of the population for several years in a row. And what they, what they found in the, they would do all this, this wolf control in the 40 mile country in the springtime, once we're starting to get daylight back and better weather for flying, um, you know, and you get fresh snow that you can track them with, you'll fly around and cut tracks and they'll follow them. But what they found was, you know, they did in they they would be breaking up packs, um, which would create more breeding pairs ultimately, but it would, mm -hmm. uh, but it would break up these packs right before the caribou calved, and so oh, okay. in theory they would, you know, they it would reduce the the overall impact that some of these wolf packs would have on, on the calving mm -hmm. caribou. Yeah. And with bears, that's, you know, kind of another thing. There's been, uh, there was a study, I don't know if it was within the last few years where they put camera collars on several grizzly and brown bears just to see what they were oh, up to in that. the springtime. And they, and it very varies bear to bear, but like some of those bears were killing 30 or 40 calves within like a two or three week period. <laughs> yeah. 
in the spring. Yeah, I remember. I remember when that study came out. Yeah, there was one, <laughs> one particular bear that was uh, was pretty good at his job. Yeah, <laughs> and there's there's some some bears like that. Uh, you know, some I think some bears are just into eating other stuff, and some bears are 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 hunters. <laughs> yeah. Now, now you made some you made some really good points here, and and, and I want to flesh this out and simplify this for listeners. Um, so yeah. when they see these types of studies, I mean we're strong advocates for science-based wildlife management. But I have said I'm not naive to the fact that sometimes there are scientists, there are publications, and there are institutions that are using science as a weapon um, to, in this case, possibly retired, you know, state biologist getting back at state policy, which they didn't like and couldn't say anything about while mm -hmm. they worked. Um, sometimes it's just organizations that, you know, are against predator control, so they have their own researchers, in, you know, like, like whatever. One of the things I learned from a scientist uh, I had a couple scientists look over this paper and kind of give me some quick thoughts. So the first one was the journal that this paper was published in, the journal is called Diversity, and it's published by the Multidisciplinary Digital Publishing Institute in Switzerland. They have a reputation, and there was a big controversy around MDPI uh, a few years ago about being what they call a predatory scientific journal. They're a private institute that publishes scientific journals. Scientists pay to submit their paper. The mm. institutes do a peer review, which in this case they were saying could be as little as one scientist in China is peer reviewing this for them. They basically go, yep, thumbs up, looks good pay us the money and you get published. Then you get to say this is a peer-reviewed, published, primary scientific study. It's supposed to be accepted as valid. So there's a whole, if you want to research it yeah. up, there's a whole <laughs> bunch of controversy about the journal. So one of the scientists said, not necessarily you know, that it was completely not good science, but it may have been a little bit on the, uh, sort of what did he say, kind of like maybe not as good a quality and rigor to get published in this journal as say as it would have been in nature or science so yeah. so that was something i learned about it but one of the big things i you know i i want to leave folks with or, or get folks to think about is so this study basically said they were doing all this bear and wolf control and hunters didn't shoot more moose. Therefore, predator control is not effective in making more moose for hunters. What you need to do is to do exactly what Tyler was ta talking about, is use your real world sense and step back and say, wh what's the reality? What is the story behind this data? How do hunters operate? Um, how do they go into areas? So what you said about, you know, it's a zone which may have um, some restrictions about whether you take a moose or a caribou. 
So now just think about, and these are just questions that you should come into your mind as a science-based hunter, is did they account for all these other things? For example, let's say halfway through this 40 years worth of data, the state changed the antler restrictions. Maybe they were harvesting a thousand moose every year, doing predator control, and then the state went, you know, in order for this moose herd to stay stable, um, hunters are getting their success rates are going up. We don't want to over harvest moose. So we're going to make more restrictive antler restrictions and actually purposely drop the harvest, get them down to like 700. If you don't tell that story or you, as a scientist, if you don't account for the fact that the regulation on a legal moose changed <clears throat> over this time frame, you just say, you know, they were doing wolf control. They used to harvest a thousand and then it went down to 700. Therefore, hey, the wolf control wasn't helpful. And, and you would go, well, wait a minute. They actually changed the regulation or, or something like if they, um, like, a, like a change where they brought in this either moose or caribou. Maybe just the way hunters are going, well, if I have to pick one or the other, I'm not going to go to that zone to get my moose anymore. I'm, I'm going to shift and go over to a different zone. And, you know, we're, we're all playing those types of games, you know, out there. And, and, yeah. and so ask those questions, you know, what, how, how are hunters actually, you know, conducting themselves? You, Tyler, you said this whole study was based on just game management unit 13. Mm -hmm. And I had a quick look on, on Alaska State Fish and Wildlife website, and if I got this right, there's quite a few zones, even like for last year, that were the approved state wolf control zones. So then it, and then it begs the question, well, how come they didn't look at the data from all of the other management zones and then compare all of them rather than just picking one? And yeah. you said it right at the beginning. Maybe they just kind of went through and went, you know, ooh, game management zone 13 kind of shows the weakest correlation. Like, let's pick that as our, our case study, right? Yeah. So, And also what, you know, one thing to look at is what they're, they, they talk about it a little bit in the paper, but you're never going to see it laid out explicitly to the masses um, that, it's what are they considering predator control? Because the state, generally, the okay. state of Alaska wants hunters to be able to be able to contribute in in whatever way we can. You know, if the state can relax regulations for you know, there's areas where, um, you know, bear, bears is an example. Um, in many areas, many more areas, they, they've legalized shooting grizzly bears using bait. They've rolled it. They rolled it out slowly, as people kind of realize that it's not having this huge impact on the populations that because they're they're totally different animals than black bears, and that's that's an entire different rabbit trail. But um, you know, there's areas. There's an area, one area I hunt that you can kill five black bears and two grizzly bears per year. You can shoot sows, cubs, shout sows with cubs, cubs, any bear. Um, not that, not that that's what anybody generally would want to do, but but it's um, an aggressive. It's program. an it's an aggressive 
program or or relaxation of the regulations to allow you know if they can if we if the the state can achieve their management goals by just letting hunters do their thing then that's that's cheaper and better in their view than and you utilize the resource that's cheaper and better in their view than you know going and gunning stuff with a helicopter or or whatever it may the case may be but so unit 13 for a long time i mean we're talking 20 years or so has had pretty lax grizzly bear i think most of it is still one one grizzly bear a year but it's no no closed season and uh and there, you know, there've been some relaxing of the regulations. So some people will interpret that as predator control, but that that those relaxations alone may not make a huge difference in the number of bears that are getting killed. And they did mention something on um, trying to track, uh, you know, like bear and wolf kills or reported reported harvests or or whatever the case may be. But I believe they also mentioned that that wasn't always a consistent source of information across the unit and across that time frame okay. either okay um, so anyway yeah. that's just that's a long-winded way of saying that that there's you also have to look at what person a is calling predator control or versus what you know you're kind of how how it's being defined in the context and related to maybe harvest data or population data whatever the case may be Right. No, that that does that does, that makes a lot of sense as well. And um, yeah, I think so. One of the other things here that's that's a very important point in this paper that a couple of scientists pointed out to me is their entire case, their conclusions, rested on the number of moose that hunters killed. That's that's the variable that they were looking for a change in that they could correlate it to bear and wolf removal. The scientist told me that simply relying on hunter harvest is not the best metric that you could use in a study, especially if your bigger interest was the moose population. One scientist told me that actually hunter harvest is a very poor indicator of ungulate populations that are either stable or increasing. It's pretty good at predicting populations that are decreasing. So year after year of hunter harvest is decreasing, that's a better indication of a population that's decreasing than a hunter harvest that is going up doesn't necessarily mean that the moose population is going up. Um, one of the scientists pointed out this was one of the, the, the flawed assumptions that caused the collapse of the Atlantic cod stocks in the Grand Banks of Canada was that technology was increasing and the fishing fleets were getting better and they were harvesting more and more and more fish and getting bigger and bigger quotas and everybody was going, see, there's lots of fish out there. And then instantly it was just, it, the whole thing collapsed. So hunter harvest that's been pointed out to me, strictly relying on the number of dead moose year after year as, as, the, as the variable that they were looking at was, in fact, the words were, were dubious. The other part of it is one of the scientists told me 
they'd have been better off to look at it as a um when it, it it's like it's the kill per unit effort and to a scientist that tells them more to say in 1976 it took a moose hunter in this unit 2.7 days to kill a moose 30 years later it takes them 37 days to kill a moose that effort the amount of effort that it takes to kill a moose can tell a scientist a lot about the number of moose in the area and then that also allows a common metric to compare several different management zones mm -hmm. and get a better understanding and and they pointed that out as being potentially a shortfall of this paper is that it should have looked at at the metric of you know hunter effort how long what was what was the unit effort to kill a moose as opposed to just total number of moose killed because like I said earlier they would have had to also explain how winters um, all of these things that affect what hunters do from year to year and also explaining the total moose harvest from year to year I've seen data sets where it's like hunter kills or hunter participation like just and there's 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 this data set for British Columbia mm -hmm. and Alberta and it skyrocketed the numbers of people buying hunting licenses just went through the roof you know record record years and it was around 2012 or 13 somewhere somewhere in there maybe a little later 16 and what that was actually correlated with was unemployment in the Alberta <laughs> oil fields. The world oil prices collapsed. I was working up there at the time, and they were shutting those oil fields down and pulling camps out and laying people off as fast as what they could do. Things were changing in an hour-to-hour -hour base. Hey, can you have your office cleaned out and be out of this camp by next week? They're going to come in and take the trailers out. Sure. That afternoon, the traders are going to be here in the morning. Can you get out now? <laughs> it's like, Jeez. and and so all of these, all of these, and and there's there's a number of studies that said there's a reverse relationship between employment in the economy and participation in hunting. And it's usually when there's more unemployment, people go hunting. Um, it's not a, a a money related thing. So, so anyways, it's like the, these are all the things that scientists would have to explain in the number of moose killed on top of the wolves and bears that were removed in order to show the strongest correlation between hunter harvest and predator control or moose kills were more strongly correlated with employment or changes in regulations or 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 whatever maybe an adjacent unit the hunter the year before took the world record out of there and so everybody yeah. went there the next year and hunter harvest dropped in this one unit going well they were still yep. shooting you know bears and wolves but it was like the the moose harvest dropped therefore wolf control actually causes a decrease in the moose population like <laughs> these are these are the real world things you got to use your, yeah. your common sense about and say, did they explain these things? And yeah. I didn't and see that they did in this paper. No, I didn't either. In it, and I, I'm, I, I liked that way of, of looking at it. It was like maybe hours per 
hours invested per successful moose killed um as a, is a way it's tough to generalize and i like to think about it because you know the area you know in a lot of areas you know any you know river access wherever people can get you know there may be a lot of people out hunting it doesn't it doesn't mean that they're they're effect being effective hunters and and still even when you know you don't you may not have to be that that far from from all these other people who aren't getting it they're looking for something they're not going to find to to get into good hunting and sometimes stuff just doesn't work out you know this year was a prime example of that we were you know spent 12 days moose hunting and the previous two year which you know i i I attribute at least in part the moose hunting getting good where i hunt due to some of these relaxed bear um grizzly bear hunting regulations um and that's you know it's kind of a kind of a precursor to to this but man we we hunted 12 days we called we were trying to get my buddy's dad a bull we called we ended up calling two big bulls in and just they didn't give us shot opportunities but after that i mean we heard we heard bulls every single day you know they just just and a lot of times multiple bulls they just wouldn't respond like they normally do and you know we get you know moose hunters are like a superstitious breed if any and, and talking or you know and I'm sure a lot of people had their greatest season ever this year, but <laughs> this past year, but a lot of people kind of noticed, you know, whatever weather, full moon, you know, whatever, for whatever reason, moose were just acting a little weird this year. But um, it didn't, because Did we didn't. that extreme we didn't, heat dome that was kind of affecting no, the rest of the, it was, no? It, it was a little warm, but it wasn't, it wasn't abnormally warm. Okay. Um, you know, it just, the, just the bulls wouldn't, we would hear them but they wouldn't respond normally. They wouldn't talk back to you. And at least, you know, you can normally get bulls to go back and forth with you for a while, right, you know, in the middle of September, um, you know, when they're starting to cow, get cows. And, you know, we'd hear bulls chasing cows, and uh, it just didn't work out. And so because we didn't get any moose when we normally shoot two within 100 yards of each other, <laughs> um, yeah. It doesn't. But it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that the moose population was struggling because it's not. <laughs> gotcha. Just because. Just because you didn't get them. You know that. No, yeah. that's that's a really good point. So, I mean, there's an actual metric that would be really valuable to have in a study like this. Is there's the number of moose, you know, that a hunter saw, um, how long it took you to get a moose. So, so this is this is an important, you know, one not to lose sight of. So let's say um, five years ago, it took a hunter um, five days to get a moose. Then they started some intensive wolf control. And the number of days that it took for a hunter to get the moose dropped, like to 1.5 days. And that hunter was submitting data, like through an app. Uh, We have one here in British Columbia like that. It's like, how many moose did you see today when when Mm. you went out? And the hunters might be just like your experience. We saw lots of moose, uh, but we didn't, we didn't get it. So sightings can be a very important um, piece of data that you can get from hunters. Um, I mean, obviously, aerial inventories would be kind of like your gold mm-hmm. standard, right? Because uh, yep. then you can get bull-to-cow ratios. You can get carryover of how many mature bulls are left after hunting seasons, um, 
calf to cow ratios in the spring, calf to cow ratios in the wintertime can give you some indications of, you know, survival, recruitment, all, all these sorts of things. But outside of that, just something like Tyler's experience going, we didn't get a couple, but man, there was a ton of moose there and we know they've been taking a lot of bears out of this, out of this unit for, for a number of years. Like that's, that's really good on the ground yeah. evidence. Well, in, 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 you know, is my, my own observations, they, they started, they opened, they, we kind of got them to allow shooting grizzly bears on bait. Cause we've, I've, I mean, family has hunted, hunted black bears over bait in this area since like the nineties. And yeah, like eventually and stuff, and stuff does change over time. You know, the makeup of what bears are around, it's not, it's, it's constantly in, in flux, but, um, was we, our black bear baits were just getting overrun with grizzly bears. And it was, that also coincided with not seeing, I mean, you would run, run these rivers and I mean, it, we, we would see maybe a couple moose running the river a summer. You know, it was, it was a noteworthy when you saw one. And so it was, it was over 10 years ago that they, they allowed baiting and, and, and it wasn't nearly as easy as I thought it was going to be, but I've gotten pretty, I've got my a system for how you know uh, to be pretty effective at, at at least getting opportunities at mature bears and i've got i've gotten quite a few and there's some other people have gotten quite a few there's still tons of grizzly bears but what i noticed was every year it was more and more calves like that you would see is they'll drop their calves right at the end of may and then um if you're still you're like seeing more and more calves into mid the middle of june you know they're most vulnerable and those bears will clean them up in the first week or two but um just you know almost an exponential increase in the number of calves that i was seeing throughout the summer you know because that's only like a partial little picture at what's what's actually there but seeing calves and then you know once we started moose hunting there seeing calves that had survived the whole summer you know and they're 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 going to be off to a pretty good start if they can make it through make it through the summer with the, with the bears around mm -hmm. but yeah i mean one night i one day well day round trip not counting the ones i and it's all just an anecdotal one sample size of one type of deal but you know i was just baffled one day i saw 26 moose i think uh, on a round trip, not counting the ones I think I saw twice. It was something like three bulls and 12 cows and the rest calves. I mean, and seeing lots of twins, lots of twins make it, you know, like I said, it's a little, a little like tiny picture into, into what's overall going on, but it didn't used to be like that. And certainly, you know, there's some, I'm sure there's some, you know, there's good food coming up to support them, but there's something to, you know, taking out some of those, especially some of the big boars and some of those old sows that are good at killing moose. Um, you know, you remove a few, you know, you remove maybe 10 of those that are killing 20, 30 calves a spring. And, and if you can just kind of keep, keep the pressure on them a little bit, you know, it, it at least in, in my one observation, you know, it, it I, I, I would, I would, 
are, I would take it, take anybody to the mat over, over saying it doesn't work or it never, or predator control, you know, in the right capacities doesn't work, just doesn't work period. I just think, I think the paper, they just did, just did a poor job, you know, framing up an, an argument that is ultimately just going to be politicized. You know, it's, you see these things mm-hmm. pop up to, to use as ammo to the masses of people who aren't going to even think critically about it. They're just going to, you know, <laughs> accept, accept the it. Whole, the whole issue of predator control in the state of Alaska, um, from, from some of the stuff that I read, like it's pretty socially controversial as well, even in Alaska, the, the, like the for and the against kind, kind of thing. Is that, is that your sense as well that it communities and families are kind of divided about a little, you know, whether you should or shouldn't? There's definitely some of that, you know, like there's, there's a portion of Fairbanks that is, and, and the more urban, the more, that, you know, or the Anchorage area, you know, and, and there's constantly a flux of people coming in and leaving and, and, you know, in urban areas, you're just going to get people that, I don't know of any of the rural areas that, that, that actually are kind of living in the, in, in the field, so to speak. You know, I don't know of a single one that's against it. You know, any of the, the, the folks, you know, native folks that live out in some of the villages and, you know, caught you know around Cottsview up in the northwest or out around Bethel I mean they're just like begging for snow and good conditions to run wolves on their snow machine you know <laughs> like because to uh-huh. to do what what they can you know and it's mm. yeah there's just you know the 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 more removed someone is from participating in in all this stuff the the more likely they are to buy into into arguments like that that aren't really and i would hope you know i i try to to look at everything objectively um but uh where i was going with that but yeah the more removed the more removed people are from it and there's quite a few folks in alaska that are that are removed that that are in that in that camp um my mind just kind of went in two different places um and it kind of revolves around people being influenced by by some of this stuff you know we have had our our, in some ways our our game management is complex um in in areas there's long story short what's called the federal subsistence board who's you know looks over or you know manages or oversees um subsistence hunting on federal land you know a lot of rural areas and it's a it's a that's a whole can of worms but they last year closed i mean millions of acres of federal public land to caribou and moose hunters during the normal moose season and caribou season fall uh-huh. seasons um for the western arctic herd citing a decline and the herd has been declining a bit but that's not it's not that simple either and you know in some of these meetings and presentations and 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 studies, you know, one one example of, of kind of like a misinterpretation or kind of taking license with scientific studies was, you know, they said, well, the par- the National Park Service did a study, and they and they do it against, you know, like maybe a new road, new, new roads or 
you know, oil development, stuff like that. They, they did a study that showed that caribou, like 25% of caribou won't cross a road or their migration is interrupted by a road. And, you know, they referenced the study. Well, you go look at the study and I actually talked to the biologist and they're saying, you know, they're saying that these, you know, air traffic and other hunters are disrupting caribou migrations is, was the claim behind it. And, you know, referencing this particular park service scientist's work and a paper that he joint, a study he joint worked on. Well, the one, and they cite, you know, it was a, a road from the coast to uh, a Red Dog Mine is what it's called. They said 25% of the caribou wouldn't cross the road. Well, over whatever time period, it was more than one year. It was like four caribou wouldn't, were, or wouldn't cross immediately or were slow in crossing out of like 20 that they collared. <laughs> it's oh, okay. just an infinitesimal yeah. like sample size. Like it doesn't, it doesn't, and even talking to the biologist, he's like, well, it doesn't, you can't really infer that much from that example. The only thing it suggests is maybe some caribou might be hesitant to cross a road the first time, especially when there's, you know, like, like the predator control examples, there's, examples like Prudhoe Bay and I mean I'm sure that I've, I've heard of examples where you know oil development does kind of disrupt the caribou but the central arctic herd which is right next to the western arctic herd and the porcupine herd and they exploded with the oil development in Prudhoe Bay and I mean they're all over the place it doesn't doesn't bother them but um people will take this you know 20 you know these caribou are, are influenced by this road when it's a sample size of four you know, four yeah, animals yeah. And, 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 and and the that, biologist even is saying, you know, and he you know, he's very was very clear in talking to him. He's like, well, you know, a migration or on a micro level, they might be disrupted as in this herd of animals. If this guy starts shooting at them, they might go the other way when they would have gone. They might they might go, you know, 500 yards to the left when they would have come right through your camp. Um but on a mass on a mass level like it's it's not they do what they do and and people don't look at some of the data like well these caribou populations naturally move up and down like they naturally fluctuate in in without inter human interference it's big swings you know feast and famine and but what the what the guy <laughs> whose work is being cited to to argue that the caribou herds or migrations are being disrupted says well, what people don't think about is when herd size shrinks, as it naturally will do, migration patterns shrink and change too. You know, so it it's kind of a it's it's not the same as the predator control issue, but it's a parallel, mm. similar type of of thing. I mean, that it people... is it, it is important. It it is important. Um, the the concept of sample size and and the strength of relationships that scientists are testing is important and if you do any you know if you dig into any scientific paper that comes out and you try to glean some information from it that's an important thing to look at is so what you said is they said and percentages are always you got to be really skeptical of percentages right yeah. so you said the study said 25 percent of the caribou wouldn't cross a road 
and you're like, oh my God. So out of these gigantic herds of like a quarter of a million caribou, a quarter of them won't go across the road. What happens to them, right? Like you're thinking yep. tens and hundreds, you know, thousands of, uh, of caribou, but it's 25% of 20 animals that they had collared. Then the question is in the study, is the 20 caribou that were collared an adequate sample size of the entire herd? Is it represented? If you went yep. and took another group of caribou and collared them in another different group and a different 20, are you going to sort of get the same result that roughly a quarter of them won't cross a road? Or is that 20 actually completely insignificant because there's 30,000 caribou in the herd? They should have had 400 caribou collared in order to make that uh, assumption apply to the whole entire population. These, these are some things that, you know, even just basic things about understanding science that I think a hunter should, you know, should understand. And these are the types of things that kind of will slip through the cracks when these papers have these really weak data sets they will be very careful to say we found a weak correlation between um, X and Y. But then the title of the paper will be um, X causes Y. And, and that's all people take and run with, like you said at the very yeah. start of the podcast, right? But somewhere buried way down there in the discussions, they'll actually admit in a single sentence or something going, yeah, we wish we could have collected more data, but you know, this is all we had time or, you know, or money for. And these are the types of sort of weaker conclusions that will still get a scientific paper published in a journal that's in the business of making money and just getting papers out there versus really big papers like Science and Nature. Their peer reviewers are going to go like, sorry, your sample size was too small, this was missing that, this is not a, and it'll get fired back to the scientists and, and the paper mm -hmm. will get rejected. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah, it, it's, it's a lot for, you know, for the average hunter to kind of, um, you know, maybe spend the time or have the knowledge to, which is why I like doing this stuff on the podcast to give yeah. you know, people these tools or, or our thoughts on these things. So, and it's yeah, tough. Think, it's I tough. It's, it's tough to stay, and it's tough to stay informed on everything. I mean, even just all the stuff that's going on in Alaska, the, <laughs> the disadvantage, at least the, for my the the way I see it, the disadvantage that we are at as hunters sometimes is, the the pressure is never going to let up, and some stuff like gets gets through it's like we can't you know i you we we got to make a living <laughs> you know <laughs> but the pressure's never going to let up and i i just feel sometimes overwhelmed like i mean i can't keep up with all this stuff i just i don't i don't have enough time in the day <laughs> and that's you no, know no how so at least in as far as some of this some of this federal subsistence board stuff and there there's other you know examples of that that's been going on but it's just like you know, I, I, I can't, you know, and, and I'm fortunate with my job, I get to work from home and I have a lot more flexibility than most people. But, you know, if you're working, if you're, you know, turning wrenches or swinging hammers or working the oil field, you know, you can't, oh, I'm going to take, I'm going to take to the half a day off to call into this meeting to voice my opinion that they're probably have already made up their mind on anyway. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? mm -hmm. It's, yeah. uh, it yeah. can be pretty discouraging, but, um, 
Yeah, I think that's a valuable service. Like you as a writer, you know, in the industry, like you write articles, you do the research, you know, people can read those and, you know, in 14 minutes or something like that and go, okay, I'm informed on on this topic or, you know, a podcast where you condense everything down Mm -hmm. and give people some some thoughts or whatever, you know, those, especially I'm finding, at least for us, a lot of people say they listen to our podcast while they're driving. So you can get the rancher who's in his service truck and he's got a two and a half hour drive out to a job site to fix an excavator that he got a call on at two in the morning. Uh, He listens to a two hour podcast on the way out. Right. So, so um, I, I do feel you know, or providing, you know, a service that way and uh, to yeah. folks that that don't mm-hmm. have the time to sit down and read papers and articles and attend meetings and Zoom calls that are, you know, in the middle of the working day and stuff. And, yeah, it's it's overwhelming. Yeah, one of the other things I tell people, too, is, like, a paper like this comes out and everybody gloms onto it. And sometimes, and I think you pointed this out at the at the very outset of the show, it can happen sort of on the pro hunting side as well people can just go oh look hey see this this paper said exactly what i've been saying for years and we should be doing the same thing going okay well let's take a critical look at it well you know actually they kind of didn't look at this and that maybe these aren't really good results uh, mm-hmm. as well as in this case these ones catch my attention because it's sort of like they're being used by yeah. by the the anti-hunting crowd so that that kind of gets my back up a little bit but i don't want to immediately like reject good science just because it doesn't sort of fit the pro hunting narrative i want to be yeah. open-minded to say hey that's a good piece of science okay as conservationists how can we take this and adapt hunting that's what mm-hmm. science-based mm-hmm. hunting in the north american model is about right yeah um so yeah it's it's uh it's it's tricky you know, it, it's it's tricky looking at all of these papers. But one of the things I tell to people, you know, I've said before, is the way science works is on what they call a body of knowledge. So a paper comes out and it's like, great. You know, we can see what the paper says. Those are some good findings. The paper will usually say, these are some limitations. We need some more research, maybe in a little bit more in this area or improve the data set here, there. And then another research project's done. And then another research and another one. And over the next 10 years, we may have had dozens of more scientists looking at this exact topic, of predator control <laughs> and moose populations in these same zones. And now we've got 50 papers that have been published on it. And we'll start to see, you know, there's some variations in the results, but they're all starting to kind of land on a common point. And that's what we really need in science-based management is that, is that pool, that collection of papers over years of work from different scientists to start saying, yeah. this is starting to show pretty clearly X is causing Y sort of thing. So something else for folks to keep in mind yeah and one interesting thing that i that i noted about that was that that paper didn't mention caribou at all which um oh interesting you know the that's typically like the nelchina caribou herd 
um, is is in and you know that central unit 13 during hunting season um, they winter and very a lot of times they'll kind of cross over with the 40 mile herd in their wintering grounds and I think sometimes the Nelchina will go up into Canada but um, you know recently it's it's since gone back down for you know what I'm not completely up on it it could be you know some they does they it, but the the Nelchina numbers were very very high in you know just a few years ago and I think they've gone back down some of that could have been due to some crossover or winter you know there, there's a lot of factors when it comes to caribou but it was interesting that that was left out because that's a pretty at least at times has been a pretty significant caribou um you know caribou game management unit too and interesting and i mean a lot of people yeah. i would say you yeah, in recent years um probably more people hunted caribou in unit 13 than hunted moose if i just hmm. at least in central unit 13 if i had to guess but um i could i could yeah, be so wrong that, on that too it's just an interesting it's an interesting yeah. omission or something they didn't they didn't look at and in the caribou regulations are different there i think for a while they for a long time it was all what they call like a tier system based on either how much you could lie on your application or you know where you lived how much you utilize kind of a sort of a subsistence preference based system ideally um and then when the herd was the herd was really booming they um put also they also added a draw tag you know, I mean, several, one year they gave several thousand draw tags um, for it. It was not a hard one to get. And then they've since backed off of that. And like I said, I don't know exactly where they're at, but it's an interesting omission mm. that that that, okay. that paper talks just about moose, moose harvest. Like it's just a red, it's a red flag when little things like this pop up and uh, in a, in yes, a paper that huge. basically says, you know, you know just says oh predator control doesn't amount to increased harvest or you know basically arguing that predator control doesn't work the way we think it would think it does or claim it does yeah no and and that that is a great real world local understanding and a question that would be raised because a drop in moose harvest could be explained by a change in caribou seasons or like you said with the the increase of allocating subsistence tags or something like that where and somebody go oh that's why that's why the moose harvest but if you just like you said conveniently ignore caribou harvest and maybe some changes in hunter motives and preferences shifting from moose to caribou whatever and only look at number of wolves and bears killed number of moose killed and look for the relationship there the stronger relationship or the better explanation might have been well it's because everybody went caribou hunting then for the next two years while while there yep. was lots of tags right like it's stuff like that and that's stuff why i love you know the fact that you came on the show because it's like these things are closer to home for you yeah. and you're able to point stuff like that out yeah no and it, it just it just gives a little even if even though you know i may not be totally up with what what all's going on um it's just questions that add context that can add some context or make you think about what 
or at least that's the way I approach it, is the things that can make me think about what other factors might be going on. And then like the, the biologist I know said, you know, he said he, he did give some examples where the data didn't show that it, that it was effective in those cases. He said, but he didn't, he didn't, he didn't point out, you know, you know, this example or that example or this example, um, that where it did, where we, we have data that shows that it was effective or it was effective for this, or it was effective for this time period in this area, you know, because we, you know, we did X and Y happened. And then, you know, over time, the, the equal, it kind of equilibrium, the equilibrium kind of settled back out and, and, uh, and and that's where they had a really good opportunity in Alaska is they had numerous game management zones you know, and and lots of data to have looked at this exact question across several game management zones, looked for trends and similarities, looked for differences of results, and then kind of ex- explained it. But the fact that they only picked game management zone 13 uh, also was something right off the bat where I was like, well, I wonder how many how many management zones there are in Alaska and yeah. how many they're actually they have you know state-led predator control on and i went right on the website and i found it really quickly and i'm like holy smokes there's actually a bunch of them that they could have mm-hmm. you know compared and contrasted the results and like you said maybe some of those zones that they left out were zones where predator control showed some really great results so it's like why not also present and talk about that as well which which it seems like that was that was missed yeah. here. So interesting. Yeah. And if uh, you know if people are interested in like some kind of historical perspective on Alaska and predator control, uh, have you ever read the book Alaska's Wolfman? No. It's uh, by Jim Reardon. Um, it's my favorite. I, I plug it every chance I I get because I it's just <laughs> probably my favorite book. But. Um, Long story short, it's about a guy named Frank Glazer who moved to Alaska in 1915 and was up here, you know, basically from 1915 to 1955 and was a market hunter, a predator control agent, um, you know, for years. And like one time we just went and built a cabin near Denali National Park there um, and just lived off the income from trapping fox in November and you know raised bred wolf dogs for sled you know dog sleds and it's a fascinating book but he talks about because he saw a big change of eras in alaska and he talks about you know how because it was at the kind of the turn where you know i've heard as far as doll sheep i've heard people argue that you know that denali national park was made you know to save the doll sheep for market hunting basically and uh you know frank glazer's in you know in the heat of market hunting at the time he talks about where he was hunting you know he said <laughs> there were sheep everywhere and no one yeah, and no one hunted them like no one no one was there even to hunt them but he talks about he talks about predators too and how in his early years up here he you know rarely saw wolves and 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 he mentions that like, what he boils all his down to is his kind of theory down to is that you know if if nature's always a see you know a seesaw and he said it's just more pronounced when we aren't involved you know 
people go from scarce to nothing and and then back again but he and he saw some of that over the years and mm -hmm. uh, it's just a really a really interesting interesting book yeah interesting I, um in david thompson the explorer's journals when he was mapping and charting um the columbia river and and he was in our part of the world Kootenai River and stuff as well like some of his early accounts of like game populations in southeastern BC where where we live have, have actually kind of helped science in the fact that they almost starved to death in the winter time because there was nothing here there was no elk there was you know that's something that's relatively recent in history and so yeah it's kind of neat some of those things you can glean from those old old books because they kept they kept pretty meticulous notes back then we don't seem to do that anymore mm -hmm. but it seems like all these hunters and trappers and explorers and stuff had journals and every single day they would you know make entries and stuff and like what a what an amazing amazing mm -hmm. record that that was and and how valuable that would be so oh, that's cool so yep uh, so plug the book again. Oh, it's called uh, Alaska's Wolfman by okay. Jim Reardon. Okay, I'll have to I'll have to look that up. Um, so one of the final things I kind of wanted to ask you this this is getting a little bit more broad. Alaska and wildlife management and who should have a say and and everything seems to be more pronounced in the general media the last couple of years alaska seems to be in the headlines a lot with a lot of things is there a general feeling that that's translating into something real for you and others that live in alaska do you feel like you just kind of want to like say to the rest of the world or the, the lower 48 like stay out of our business um what what's do you think that's changing and there's a little bit more pressures from outside the state, people that don't live and breathe this stuff, of being told what they should and shouldn't be doing? Um, I would say in some ways, yes, but that could just be perception because it's been happening for a long time. Um, and people up here have been dealing with it for a long time. They... Uh, you know, a lot of the, the old timers, I'm fortunate to know, you know, a lot of them, the biggest spat is between the state and the federal government for wildlife management, which according to our state constitution, the state is supposed to manage the wildlife, even on federal lands. Um, and in a lot of ways, you know, a lot of people feel like the, the federal agencies, you know, land managing agencies have overreached that and are trying to de facto manage wildlife and and you know if you you depend on you know tinfoil hat how tinfoil hat you want to get um there's like a very real movement within these federal agencies or some people in these federal agencies to to manage regulate people off the landscape um and it's just a preservationist versus conservationist mindset but uh there definitely is pressure and there has been for a long time even which another old it's a it's a on DVD now, and I don't think you can buy them anymore. But there's an old video called "This Is My Alaska" that a guy named Leroy Shebel, who was like an early master guide, and lived in Fairbanks. Um, they did like eight millimeter films of an entire year of their adventures. You know, they started out you know 
they'd go up to the Brooks Range and, and airplane wolves, and then they would come back and, you know, go fishing and do all this stuff. But he taught, you know, this is in the 50s, like before, or he's he's talking, I think he, he made put the film together after statehood, but he specifically mentions all these, you know, outside do-gooder groups that are trying to shut down polar bear hunting and stuff like that. And he's pointing out, like, the, you know, the polar bear hunting is where, you know, there is facilitates our biologists being out there in tagging and you know they would guide polar bear hunters at the time but before the hunts they would take biologists out or you know and go and and help them dart and work on these bears you know like it's just that's another example that that, that, you know this stuff's been going on for for a long long time and and it it has been high profile lately with some of the federal agencies um back and forth on on some you know basically what they say you're allowed to do on federal land and they yeah. pretty much always go against you know the state's you know maybe predator control minded relaxed regulations in some ways and they always highlight things that basically nobody does <laughs> as far as the the inflammatory stuff but um yeah that anytime, was that whole, the whole digging cubs out of the den thing and yeah kill, like that was like yeah, nobody does that, and it was like yeah, that was which, the thing that the, <laughs> no, the, yeah. the news was all over all the time. <laughs> oh, yeah, geez. and it's and that's back now too. It's basically when when we get a liberal administration, they appoint the Secretary of the Interior, who you know either sanctions or doesn't sanction the people that are already in place to push you know this regulation or 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 peel it back. Um, right. So. Yeah, right. it's 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 tiring. <laughs> oh, but man. uh Well, hey, in Canada our federal government's trying to take our guns away, which is why we yeah. needed you to shoot down the spy balloons and the UFOs <laughs> yeah. cuz we're you know, not allowed well, to do it anymore. Well, I our was Prime just Minister in said, Al- "You don't need an yeah. AR-15 to bring down a Chinese spy balloon." So, it was <laughs> like we can't have them anymore, so. <laughs> yeah, well, our 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 president said you don't you don't need an AR-15 and, you know, how many pancakes does it take to roof a doghouse and ice cream doesn't have bones or, you know, whatever. But uh, <laughs> God. I was in, oh, yeah, man. I was in Alberta a couple of weeks ago um, on a wolf hunt, ironically, which was a lot of fun. Um, but <laughs> I was just like, man, you know, you guys really have so much going on that we don't get to, I don't, I didn't hear a single criticism of American government. <laughs> Because you guys, because you guys got your hands yes. full. Hey, you got your own problems for once. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Leave, leave us alone, uh, Tyler. Um, thanks for this. I I really value kind of this um, this on the ground perspective. Uh, you know, balance between your personal experiences, which you were really good at, kind of tempering your own observations out there with an understanding of this scientific paper and talking to biologists and stuff. Uh, I think this is of great interest to uh, folks in Canada because, you know, um, predator management, like I said, it's it's a hot topic here as well, especially in British Columbia and Alberta with um, the efforts of going on and reducing, reducing wolf densities in efforts to save endangered caribou herds. Uh, it's it's a big topic, and I just really wanted to step outside of our borders and kind of explore this with you so that we can kind of um, glean 
from it what we can and maybe understand a little bit about the narratives that groups here in Canada that have glommed onto this paper are already using. So hopefully we gave people a few things to think critically about uh, when it mm -hmm. comes to, to this paper. Appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for thanks for having me on. And if there's one thing, I'm not, I have believe it or not, as over the years of doing my podcast, I have improved at, at speaking. And <laughs> I, you know, it's oh, it's, I, it's a process. So hopefully, you know, every I, I try I, to. That's what I tell know. people. I'm a working. I'm a working process. <laughs> yep. So, um, yep. For so sure. Before we go, is that is that a lifetime collection of doll sheep on the wall behind you, or part of it? part of it um that's one, holy two. Oh my God. okay one let's so one, one two, two three, three four five six seven eight nine ten eleven you got, a I got three more oh. I, I got miscount? i got three more i got three more in the house so yeah <laughs> okay. wow that's beautiful yeah. That's beautiful. See, for us, that's like white-tailed deer. And you're like, oh, it's like yeah. a diamond dozen, right? <laughs> you're like, oh, yeah, those are doll sheep. That's our white-tailed deer. We get we get two a year. <laughs> Man, that's that's amazing. Um, folks, uh, check out Tyler's uh, work on, in, in Outdoor Life. Uh, follow his columns. Check him out. Uh, you're on Instagram uh, as well. And the Tundra Talk podcast. If you are interested in all things Alaska, hunting, fishing, and trapping from an Alaskan perspective, uh, that's, pr that's pretty cool. I, I love that. Thanks for coming on and, and, and imparting your thoughts on predator management and moose and caribou. It was, it was truly a lesson. Uh, we learned a lot from you. Thanks. Mm -hmm. Oh, thanks, guys. I'm glad I, glad I could uh, could you know, provide some, provide some context and, and hopefully, hopefully get people like looking at some of this stuff that pops up, you know, critically and just asking, asking questions about it. That is exactly, I think that is, that is a fantastic way to sum this up. And I think Rob, Robbie Kroger from Blood Origins always says this. It's just like, think. That's just what we need hunters to do is just like, think. Uh, and you said it, think critically, and it's questioning, putting things into perspective, digging a little bit into these topics, asking some right questions. Um, it's so important that, that we do this. Information can be our best friend in, in supporting the future of hunting, and it can also be used as a weapon sometimes against us. So we need to be able to think critically uh, on all levels and all fronts about things, hunting. So... No, that's a, that's a great point. Curtis, take it away. Right on. The Hunter Conservationist Podcast is brought to you by Alpine Toyota in Cranbrook, BC. As always, huge shout out to Alpine for their continuing support of us here at the Hunter Conservationist. We are very grateful that they help us to bring conversations like the one we just had with Tyler to you, the listeners. Uh, we also want to thank Deluxe Wall Tents for becoming a sponsor supporter of the Hunter Conservationist. Thank you for standing behind the work that we do in supporting hunters and science-based wildlife management. Hunting is an important part of Canada's culture and heritage, and the Hunter Conservationist is dedicated to preserving the future of hunting in Canada through education and advocacy. 
we would like to invite you to join the Hunter Conservationist community, gain access to two exclusive podcasts, some bonus content, and a discussion board of like-minded, conservation-oriented individuals. Join us today and be part of the movement to protect our hunting heritage for generations to come. You can join at patreon.com slash the hunter conservationist and lastly turkey season is fast approaching and if you want the edge on how to not i'm not going to say successfully turkey hunt just how to turkey hunt reasonably well we have the wild turkey hunting masterclass which is available on our website at thehunterconservationist.com even if you're an experienced turkey hunter, check it out. There's lots of good tidbits on there. So, Arm yourself with information and knowledge about turkey hunting. No, those are all good points. I always maintain a successful turkey hunting season is if I hear a tom gobble, and it's even more successful if he gobbles back to a call that I make. Anything after that is just a bonus but that makes it for me every year cool man thanks tyler again um if you got some pictures of the granddaddy gophers of them all up in alaska post them on your instagram page so we can see them <laughs> folks folks know how big these these uh, adult gophers are up in alaska ground squirrels all right everybody i'll see you in the next episode 